The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. Following a successful career on the New York Mercantile Exchange, Stephen Shork transitioned to an upstairs trading operation. He quickly realized that the demise of open outcry on the commodity futures exchanges eliminated the transparency of deal flow. In response to this void, Stephen developed proprietary multivariate probabilistic models to identify statistically significant ranges at which to trade energy products and or hedge exposure. In 2005, Stephen co-founded the Shork Group, the industry's premier provider of price range forecasting and independent, fundamental, quantitative, and technical analysis. Central to the company's product suite is the Shork Volatility Bands, SVB, visual representations illustrating opportunities at which the underlying calculations signal deviations from historical norms. Professionals in the global energy arena rely upon this methodology to improve economic performance and manage risk. Stephen is a registered commodity trading advisor with the National Futures Association. Now let's get into the episode with Stephen, principal and editor at the Shork Group. Welcome back, Dave, John, and Stephen. It's good to be back. Great to be here. Back as well. All right most minimal overlapping as possible. That's great. So today we are joined again by principal and co-founder of the Shork Group, Stephen Shork. Welcome back, Stephen. It's great to be back, Lysandra. Thank you. So to dive in today's episode, I'm going to pass it off to Dave. Dave, you want to get right in? Yeah, thanks so much, Lysandra. And Stephen, great for you to be back again with us. Uh, we covered a lot of content and I'm, I'm sure this is just going to be just as informative for our listeners. Listen, I'm, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball because there's a question I think we need for you to answer because I think many of our listeners may not be aware of this, but can you share with them like how many barrels of oil are in demand in the marketplace on a daily basis and where do you think it's going to go in the next five to 10 years before I go to the, the initial question I had? Yes, a uh, great question because it opens up a Pandora's box of, again, why we are in the situation we are in. Back in November, here in the United States, our Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which keep in mind was created in the wake of the Arab oil embargo in 1975. It has been used. The whole process of, or the point of the SBR is to alleviate a short-term unexpected disruption to the supply of oil. And it's been used, of course, during the Gulf War, during Iraq, during the hurricane outages and so forth. For the first time in the history of the SPR, U.S. administration said, we're going to release barrels from the SPR to bring down gas prices. Now, I wrote an article shortly after that announcement in the Daily Mail saying how it was destined to fail. And certainly oil prices that then were $7 a barrel. Today, they're $110 a barrel. So yes, it absolutely failed because we're trying to manipulate the markets. And the announcement was the release of 50 million barrels. Sounds like a lot. That's three days worth of consumption here in the United States. Now, the scary, really scary thing about this is on the announcement of releasing barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, ostensibly to theoretically lower gasoline prices, Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy of the United States, in her briefing to announce the uh, the need for the SPR, was asked the question, how many barrels a day does the United States consume? Secretary of Energy did not know the answer. 
So here she is saying, oh, we need this extra oil on the market. The woman didn't even know how much we consume. Uh, so it's upwards of 19, 18, 19 million barrels a day here in the United States. Globally, it dipped below 100 million barrels during COVID, but we're right back there, 100, 101. The growth factor, again, demand for fossil fuel for, for energy is only going to increase over the next 10 years. So it's increasing, of course, in the industrialized world, but it's also increasing in other aspects, demand growth in South America, demand growth in Africa, so forth. So upwards of probably 110 million barrels a day before it's all said and done. So picking up on just what you just said, so what do you believe is currently the biggest challenge for the oil and gas industry in, in North America? At least for the next three years, it's going to be a government policy. We're looking at a government here in the United States that is the most belligerent, has taken the most belligerent stand, the only belligerent stand against uh, U.S. energy policy in the history of, of, the, of our industrial birth. So, so we have a situation here when you go ahead and read, go back to 2012, and you read the Democratic National uh, Committee's uh, platform for going into Obama's second. It was all about natural gas. In Obama, his first term, I was nervous being an oil and gas guy, but he was very good for the industry. He appreciated how important the industry was, and he promoted the industry. The Macondo oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico had to change the calculus for him a bit. But overall, his eight years in, in office, I, I have to give him, well, before Macondo and his embrace of the industry, he definitely got an A, A+. Plus. He had a change, which brought his grade down to a B+, plus, but hey, I'll take it. Net, I think he was a positive, and we know he was a positive again, reading his platform in 2012 about natural gas. It, it was all about natural gas and promoting and, and how it gave U.S. industry comparative advantage. So he embraced it. Now juxtapose that with the 2020 platform for Biden, it, it, hostility from, from the get-go and a little bit of verbal trickery because in the platform, he never mentions natural gas. They call it methane, which of course is what natural gas is. But most people reading don't understand methane, natural gas, so forth. But it's all about mitigating and, and controlling it and, and, and weaning ourselves off of it. So clearly the administration and, and once again, of course, everyone in the United States who watched the October presidential uh, debate, we all heard President Biden, you know, nominee President Biden say, answering yes, he is going to close down the U.S. oil industry. And so we have a situation where we have the comptroller of the currency. This is a direct quote. We want them, oil and gas companies, to go bankrupt. That way, we basically get rid of those carbon financiers if we starve them of their sources of capital. So this is who the industry is dealing with. And by far, this is hands down the greatest obstacle that the industry faces over the next three years. I'm going to switch a, a little bit of the degree here. We talked briefly at our last podcast about LNG and the impact of its ability to grow. But can you share with our listeners what impact LNG export capacity has to the domestic we'll say North American gas prices, because for our listeners, any time the price goes up in the U.S. certainly has an impact in Canada. It has such a such a huge impact. So what would you what could you share with us about the impact of LNG export and how it's impacted the, the gas market? And Stephen, yeah, do you absolutely. mind also yeah. do you mind also explaining what LNG is in comparison to NG? 
Oh, I'm okay, sorry. absolutely. Yeah, no, no worries. So we'll start with LNG. It stands for liquefied natural gas. And before there was prices were high enough, uh, it didn't make sense for U.S. producers to go ahead and invest in liquefying natural gas. Now, natural gas, typically when it comes out of the ground, you get it from your basin, you put it in, you process it, you put it into a pipeline, and you, you ship it to your direct market area. So whether that's a utility burning natural gas, a factory or a mill burning natural gas, it is a direct basin to consumption market area. And the prices were never high enough. Now, again, I talk about all these laws in economics. Another important law of economics is high prices are the best cure for high prices. So what happened in uh, the early 2000s was that a tremendous demand hit. This was an offshoot of coming out of the dot-com recession. The, the, the growth, sudden growth of China uh, on the global picture economically and growth in uh, the developing wor world in Africa and the Middle East. And we had a tremendous amount of demand hit the market. Now, that was demand hitting the market, a market that underinvested through the 80s and the 90s. Why did the market underinvest? Well, oil prices averaged those 20 years below $20 a barrel. So there was this fallacy that the world was running out of oil because we haven't made any new discoveries. No, that was completely wrong. We hadn't made any new discoveries because we didn't look for any new discoveries. But all of a sudden, you drive prices $100, $125, $150 a barrel. Suddenly, you find a lot of oil and you find a lot of natural gas. We drove natural gas prices that market rallied before the oil markets did. So we invested heavily in shale technology to get that gas to the market. So we drove prices high enough. Now it made sense for US producers to start shipping their gas. Now you can't build a pipeline, Nord Stream 2 beside, but you can't put, put a pipeline from a, from a basin here in the Marcellus Shale in Western Pennsylvania and connect it to uh, Rotterdam or connect it to Beijing or, or Tokyo. You have to put it on a vessel. So the way you put it on a vessel is you take the natural gas, methane, in its gaseous form, you freeze it, and it shrinks, and in, in, in its density shrinks, and you put that frozen gas on, on a LNG-specific carrier, and then you're able to ship it around the world. And then what you need, and I spoke about this in the last podcast, once that ship pulls into your port, you need the ability to gasify, regasify that gas and turn it from a solid into a vapor so you can put it in your pipeline in uh, Bremen or in Sullivan or, or, or so forth, where, wherever you're importing it. So that is what natural gas is. It's just methane in a different form so you can ship it. Now, to answer the question about the impact on the domestic, yes, going back once again with the high price environment in the early 2000s, you had that high price environment because you didn't have enough supply. And why I say high prices are the best care for high prices, what do those high prices do? It encouraged investment to get more supply, shale technology to the market. So then over the last 10 years, we went from a situation where we had not enough supply to offset demand, where we had too much supply to offset demand. So the industry had to build out infrastructure. Uh, you've got a lot of natural gas in Western Pennsylvania, Northern Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, but doesn't do you any good if you can't get it to a market, a consumption market area. There's only so much gas I can, my, my home, my office can consume here in the Philadelphia suburbs. So you needed to build out of infrastructure, more pipelines to get it to 
export markets. So we went from our first 10 years of the century, not enough supply, high prices. The second decade, too much supply, uh, not enough demand. We're now in that balancing area where supply and demand are now meeting. So we are shipping out upwards of 13, 14 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas. So that is underpinning the natural gas market. So it certainly is adding firmness to the to pricing. So almost a floor. Two years ago, natural gas prices could barely trade above $3 a decatherm, which translates into about $18, $19 crude oil. Today, the market is consistently trading over $4. Today, it's over $5, which is the equivalent of about $30 crude oil. So while yes, it is expensive relative to where we were, does anyone really want to go back to 2020? So prices ha- have are beginning to moderate and we're getting to see where the floor in the market is. And that floor seems to be somewhere in the fours. And that is an offshoot of increased demand here in the United States. Again, because we've killed the coal stack and, and we're against nuclear. Uh, so you have demand here domestically and you have demand globally, which is helping to support price. One of my pet peeves here is I live in Pennsylvania. I love of the state. We are, with the Marcellus Shale, the epicenter of the global natural gas market. But yet, because we've had a government that is unfriendly to the industry, on January 1 of this year, my utility bills, both for the gas to heat my home and the power to keep my lights on, those costs went up beginning on January 1st with the state-approved rate rise. How is it that I live in a state that has the greatest resources of natural gas in the world, and yet my cost still had to go up on January 1st. Again, insane, but this is where we are. We have strong demand, both domestically, globally, driven by LNG, which is helping to support energy costs here in the U.S. So can I just uh, pick up a, a little bit? So, you know, you were talking about, just for our listeners, the, the, the reason why your price in gas went up and electricity is because gas did go up, as you described, gas. So that certainly hit, hits the marketplace, marketplace gets that price and goes to consumers. And then if there's gas is being used to generate, then effectively that actually increases the electrical pricing as well. And that that's the that's what transpires, which you know, I just want to make sure our listeners understand that. Question yeah, for absolutely. you. Yep. Question for you is, you know, natural gas is seen as the transition to a cleaner, right? And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of coal that's used around the world. And because of that, I foresee when there's opportunities and infrastructures in place that natural gas will actually take the place of coal. And so I'm saying this because do you see that natural gas pricing based on your models, there's a step change where it could actually increase even further in the longer term because of this more demand for natural gas replacing coal around the world. Is there any credence or what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in the West, that was considered, as far as I was concerned, a no-brainer 15 years ago, that that natural gas is that bridge fuel. It was actually a fuel that was embraced by environmentalists because it was going to and has offset coal 
uh, consumption in the West, but it wasn't until natural, and, and that was great when natural gas prices were $10 a decatherm. So that was equivalent when natural gas prices were $50, $60 crude oil equivalent. But what happened is we drove natural gas prices lower, which increased demand. And all of a sudden the environmental movement said, oh, we, we made a mistake because at these prices, natural gas is, we're never going to make this transition. Natural gas is your, your clean, it's the, you know, what's the saying? It's the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. So from a fossil fuel perspective, yes, it, it is a fossil fuel, and but it is your cleanest fossil fuel and it's your most reliable, your most dependent. So certainly there's been roadblocks that will continue. We had a natural gas uh, liquids pipeline, not natural gas, but the liquids being built here in, in my county here in Pennsylvania, south of Philadelphia, that, that we are on the Delaware River and they want a pipeline, the Mariner East pipeline to export that oil. But every county virtually that they've had to build this pipeline through coming from Western Pennsylvania into Eastern Pennsylvania has been fought every step of the way by environmental groups, which just increases the costs, which once again deters investment in the industry. And, and this has been the game plan of the green agenda. So yes, natural gas, just like oil, Demand will continue to grow and it's growing in the West and certainly it's going to grow in China. And I mean, China, I mean, look at this last environmental me meeting over in Europe back in the fall. Putin and Xi in China, the two biggest polluters in the world, didn't even bother. You know, remember, this was the conference that Joe Biden slept through. But Xi and Putin didn't even bother to show up at, at this because they knew it, it, it didn't. I mean, it didn't matter because China is still considering and they're coal and they're still growing their demand for coal. So it's going to be a situation where, yes, in the West, coal is the answer and it will certainly replace, maybe not entirely, but certainly it already has surpassed of, on the electric generation stack, natural gas. 20 years ago, coal was responsible for more than half of the generation power in the United States. Now it's a fraction of, of where it used to be, and that will continue, the natural gas offsetting. But look, the environmentalists don't want to hear it, but, but you, the best answer is nuclear. It is the clean. It doesn't emit any. It, it, it emits water vapor. So try getting that passed with, with the greens here. So yes, natural gas hat will continue to surpass coal, offset coal here in the West. Very skeptical in Asia, and, and in particular, if there's only one country I'm talking about, is China. They show no gumption about, you know, they'll pay lip service to a greener, but the reality on the ground is they are the world's largest producer. I think, what was the statistic? They emit more contaminants into the atmosphere than, than the next like the 10 largest industrial countries in, in the world combined. So that, that is a big obstacle. But once again, natural gas is a good answer for the West. Nuclear is the best answer. And, and Stephen, the, again, I, 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 this is your core business, so I, I don't want to, you to give any secret sauce here. But, but <laughs> in, in, in the long term, do, do you see natural gas pricing, you're still bullish on natural gas pricing, that it, it could get even stronger than what it currently is because of the incremental. Yes, because right now, when we look at natural gas prices, real natural gas prices, they're very cheap. And when I say real, of course, I'm talking about adjusted for inflation. And every energy cost around the globe is adjusted for inflation, very affordable. Uh, not, it wasn't until gasoline prices here in the United States tipped above nearly $4 
that that became expensive because the most expensive gas a U.S. driver has ever had to pay was about $1.90 in the early 1980s when we lost a lot of supply during the Iran-Iraq war. Adjusted for inflation, that came to about $3.90. So now you have to think about a situation where how is it a commodity as important as energy where our ability, the demand has only grown over the last 40 years, access to it has decreased. We have to go very deep into the ocean to get some of our oil. We have to negotiate with some pretty nasty characters in the Middle East and South America to get this oil. And how is it up until recently, that oil price was cheaper today than it was 40 years ago. It's, a, it's an amazing story. So gasoline, we have hit that inflection point, have not hit it yet in natural gas. The market will adjust and adapt. I do not see, I've gotten this question a lot, especially from my end user clients uh, that I consult with. They all want to know when natural gas prices are going back below $3 a decatherm. I, I don't see it happening. I think we've made that next step higher in the process where now that 4 to $5 uh, range is now going to be the norm, which is still a fraction of what we were paying 15 years ago when Hurricanes Katrina and Rita knocked out a significant amount of production in the Gulf of Mexico. And at that time, almost 20% of the United States' natural gas came from the Gulf of Mexico. The natural gas prices were trading at $9, $10, a decatherm. And that was the norm. And the market did, did adjust. Now, the problem was we drove a lot of our industry abroad, especially the fertilizer industry. As I noted in the previous podcast, natural gas price, uh, natural gas is the primary feedstock for ammonia nitrate fertilizer. And then when you drove prices from $2 a decatherm in 2000 to about $10, five years later, those fertilizer companies couldn't make, make a living and they moved abroad. But then we brought that natural gas prices back down and the fertilizer companies moved back in. So, and they can still stay here at four, four to $5 a decatherm. You can't do it in Europe when the natural gas prices is 30 times greater than what, what is here in the United States. But just to uh, you know, round out the answer that, to the question, uh, yeah, I think we are in that normal uh, range and we will continue to, I think, grow, but, but more on, a, a, on an inflation-adjusted basis. We're not going to see these spikes. Natural gas is a, very, it's a much more stable market. You do see crazy volatility on very, very cold days when a utility didn't plan for have enough gas in the pipe to, to offset, or on very, very hot days when they didn't buy enough gas to generate electricity for air conditioning. But over the horizon, along that x-axis, demand is of, it's not as volatile as you see in oil prices. So I, I would expect to see a balancing out going forward. Again, I think we're in that 4 to $5 regime on very high demand days, we, or, or periods will hit $6. And again, we're still talking sub $40 oil, and we're still talking about half of what we were paying 15 years ago. But certainly, I would expect, again, adjusted for inflation, as demand continues to grow, both domestically, as we offset coal and we don't want to replace it with nukes and we don't have enough renewable technology and, de and international demand, that we will see a, a steady growth in natural gas. So long term, I've always been a bull for natural gas. I took my licks in over the last two years and natural gas was below $3, but now we're consistently above $4 and, uh, and, I, and I remain bullish because it is the fuel of choice, regardless of what the green agenda says. Okay, I, I want to take you perhaps towards the green 
green agenda. You, you, you talk in a very informed way about market economics and economics in general. And, you know, one could suggest that if things were equal, huh, that's, a, that's a statement, isn't it? All things, <laughs> the increasing price of petroleum products should have a positive effect on renewable industry development. That sounds as if it should happen. No, that, that is that is completely accurate, and, and it brings up an excellent point that the, the savvier people in OPEC, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iran, appreciate that 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 there is a limit of diminishing uh, returns. That what, once you push a price high enough, you're going to impact consumers' behavior. Now, the oil markets up until, we'll say, last 10 years, never had to worry about that because in economics, you need two factors, variables in the equation to impact consumer habits. You need price shocks. And you know, beginning in the early 70s with the Arab oil embargo, we've certainly seen our shocks. We had a spike higher then market, the market crashed. We had another spike higher at this outbreak of the Iraq Iran war in the early 80s. Prices collapsed. We had another spike, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, yada, 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 Iraq, Afghanistan. You get the drill. So we, we've always had those spikes, but we've never had the second variable that you need and you need the substitute. So yes, you, you have demand for gas, but that was the only game in town. So it was the most inelastic of all commodities, meaning that regardless of price, you had a de minimis impact on demand because people had to drive to the office, they had to drive to their kids to school and so forth. But now we have substitutes in the form, of course, of electric vehicles and hybrids. As I said, I believe in the last podcast, I'm a big believer in hybrids. I have one. I don't want to go all electric because I do have range anxiety at this point, but I'm getting a blended price, blended consumption of upwards of 80 miles a gallon on my hybrid. It, it's, it's fantastic. And OPEC is aware of this, that if they drive prices too high, and, and I'll venture, OPEC is concerned at these prices, you will begin to impact consumer demand for your product. So there is that balance in act where you want prices high enough for you to get a return on investment, but you don't want them too high where you where you, you know, kill off your demand. And, and we are seeing that every Tesla, every all EV car you see on the road, that is a loss of, of, of demand for, for OPEC forever. That demand's never coming back. And even in my situation with the hybrid, 12 years ago, I had a, a large SUV that got about, you know, 300 yards to the gallon. I was spending upwards of $100 a week to fill that beast. Now I'm spending, even at these high prices, I'm spending about $70 every five weeks. So, so that, that is certainly a, an offshoot of these high prices. And certainly we're talking a national average of $4.40. If that probability I said in the last uh, broadcast of nearly a 30% probability will be at uh, $150 oil, 17, 18% probability will be at $200 oil. Well, that's going to translate in the United States. The national average right now is $4.40, but we're already going to go about 20, 30 cents higher next month or beginning next month because the gasoline that is supplied to the market by refineries is winter grade gasoline. Next month, refineries will have to start supplying summer grade gasoline, which is more expensive to blend. So the typical differential between winter and summer gasoline is about 30 cents. So now we're talking about national average this summer, $4.60, $4.70 at current levels. Now, if we go to 150, 100 in uh, 
or $200 a barrel. Now we're talking about gasoline over a national average at over $5.20, which adjusted for inflation would be an all-time high. And at $5.20, you've got gasoline in California that's already $6. But look, the Californians, they do what they want. They, they deserve the prices they get with, with the obstacles they, they put up. So good riddance. But at $5.20 national average, now you're talking $8 in, in California. And that certainly will push consumers away from oil and gas and towards renewables. So instead of the government mandating all of these switches and, and the zero-sum green agenda, let the market solve, it, solve itself. It is, and it will. And at these high prices, it will just push that much uh, sooner where we'll see more renewable energy or demand for on the market. But once again, as I said, you're, you're always going to need that backstop of a fossil fuel BTU to be able to burn when, as we say, the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. Now, in the conversations we've been having, it's pretty clear that you see a future, well, certainly in the short-term future, that is not just a renewable future, not just a fossil fuel future, that we're going to need both of them. And if we're doing a bit of future casting, I think we'd all be I guess we'd all be looking for a world with reduced greenhouse gas emissions. We've got better economic health. We've got less fuel poverty and we've got energy security. And these things become rather interesting when you put them all together. Given that you see a future that requires both renewables and petroleum products for that, how should their roles are behaving at the moment? Should we say, you know, petroleum? oil and gas and renewables, do you see them changing to give us a better future? I do. And and I think, and we're seeing some tremendous success with it. Solar uh, panel in Southern California make, makes a tremendous amount of sense. In fact, the cheapest and power electricity is traded on an hourly basis. Uh, you see your cheapest prices for power during the hottest parts of a California summer because you're getting all that solar radiation being generated into electricity. It's not until the sun goes down and then you don't have solar anymore and then you do have to fire up natural gas power plants. That's when power prices will go higher. So they, they go higher at night and in the cooler parts of the day, the hottest parts of the day. That's a tremendous success story. The winds, and, and that's great for Southern California not necessarily great for Detroit, Chicago, Boston, but it's great for certain market areas. Phoenix, the Southwest, parts of the Southeast makes a lot of sense, as does West Texas. Makes a lot of sense, but we have to accept a market that's going to live side by side, both fossil fuel consumption, petroleum, natural gas, and renewables. There's a, there's a place and a need. Uh, and then let me also, my, my kick on nuclear, that also has to be part of the answer. So there is a place for all in the market. And when we talk at poverty, right, it's it's a very dicey situation. Let's keep in mind the Middle East has always been and, and for the foreseeable future always will be a, a, a powder keg ready to blow. Now you take away their main source of income, petroleum exports, petrochemical exports, and you cut off that money line and that's going to cause a lot. I mean, that, that is the fuse that will set off a unbelievable geopolitical event. Same situation in Africa. I mean, Nigeria is the richest country because it is a major oil exporter. The West Coast of Africa, a lot of that oil come, goes to Europe. A lot of it comes to the East Coast of the United States. Very important for those developing countries, as is a burgeoning oil export market in East Africa. So these are areas that, yes, it's great in the West, 
But keep in mind, there is a double-edged sword. A lot of economies in the world, in South America as well, are reliant on a good part of their income from the export of petroleum and natural gas. And if you cut that off and you cut off that money drain as very predictable, you're going to see a lot of strife, a lot of hunger, a lot of poverty increase over the next generation if we don't learn to live side by side with with all of these avenues of energy to the markets. Thank you. That's interesting view. Stephen, for this episode, I was just wondering, what is your biggest takeaway for our listeners from this episode? We talked about quite a few different things from natural gas prices to how the impact of renewables will incorporate in our new world. Absolutely. You know, look, look and don't be afraid to invest in the fossil fuel uh, industry right now because it is an industry that is going to continue to grow. There's a continued need for it and, and be aware of that and uh, don't shun it. Also embrace, as we said in the last podcast, also embrace uh, renewables. Again, I'm an oil and gas guy. I, I drive a hybrid. I love it. So that is certainly part of the answer. There's no one panacea out there. We want it. We want to think there is. Accept it. It's not there. Not there yet. Not there in the foreseeable future. So let's l- learn to live side by side. Everyone has cheap energy. Right now, let's return to an area where we we had it and we threw it away. It can be regained and let's work. Let's press industry. Let's press government to embrace both avenues and stop this zero-sum game where it's all or nothing. Excellent takeaway. John, any final comments? Yeah, I think this podcast has yet again reinforced that you, you need to take a look at geopolitics and the bigger picture and that you've got to balance so many needs and requirements and it's quite interesting because I think Stephen's view is leave the market it can do it government doesn't want to leave the market and it creates imperfect markets and then we potentially end up with the worst of both worlds so I don't quite know what the solution is going to be but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm just going to pick up on what John said because it was really and maybe it's because it's kind of how I roll I, I think markets solve problems. And so if people understand markets, they understand market pricing. Like example, Stephen was talking about how actually the price of energy has actually substantially lower than what it was in the 2000s and, and because the efficiencies have gotten better. So it's driven that whole thought process. And, and he alluded to how that's happening in the renewable energy. And, and so I, I echo what John said and reinforcing what what Stephen has conveyed in his business is let markets move this. Make sure customers understand how to work in markets when they make their decisions. And then I think it will drive the best solution. And it will be a variety of solutions. It won't be just one particular one. So I, I, I thought I picked up certainly reinforced maybe what I want to hear, but certainly reinforced what I think is really critical. Excellent points all around. Thank you so much, Dave, John, and Stephen for your time today. Oh, very welcome. It was great to be here. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. 
Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.